Hi everyone, Chris Hobbs here, president of TTT Studios, where we make the software magic come to life. Welcome to episode number four of the Afternoon Tea Podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs and leaders in the tech industry about their journeys, their experiences, and all sorts of other interesting and fun things happening in their lives. Our guest today is Ian McKinnon a recent Business in Vancouver 40 Under 40 winner and co-founder of the social media scheduling platform Later, which had a very unique start to the business in that it answers a question I always have when I go to a hackathon, which is, can a real business actually be created from such an event? Stay tuned to find out. But in the meantime, if you like what you hear and there's no reason why you shouldn't, Please don't forget to rate and review us. Heck, I think you should even subscribe. So now let's listen together. Ian McKinnon is the founder and CTO of Later.com. Founded in 2014, Later was started at a hackathon and has grown to become the leading marketing platform for Instagram with over 2 million of the world's top brands and agencies as clients, including YouTube, NBC News, The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stones, and The Financial Times. At Later, Ian is responsible for leading the engineering team in its software development efforts, as well as spearheading its machine learning initiatives. Prior to founding Later, Ian was involved with several Vancouver technology startups as a founder or early stage employee. He has also been a coding instructor for a Learn to Code bootcamp and an active mentor to other local startups. Ian holds a master's in computer science from the University of Waterloo. And um, he is also recently awarded the very prestigious Business in Vancouver's 40 Under 40. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I think our history goes back quite a few years now, I would say. Yeah. I was actually this morning, I was trying to think about where was the first time that we met. And I think it has to have something to do with a hackathon at some point. Has to be somewhere in the early days, I would imagine. Well, I mean, it was either that or your twin brother that I met. I can never really tell. The number of times I've faked it, knowing whether it was Chris or Dave is, you know, but Hackathon, at least you have a name tag on and it's easier to differentiate you two. You know, over the years, I've always been, I've been interested in how active you've been uh, with with Hackathons um, as a supporter, as a a hacker, um, or even as a full organizer. And, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it was nice how we always cross paths through that, among other things in in the Vancouver community. Um, so why don't we just start with this? You know, because again, the hackathon is interesting, and I've always thought, you know, creating a business out of a hackathon it's it's a really great opportunity, and you kind of proved that to be true. Um, so because later is an example of that, where where you know, you. It was originally an idea. Which which hackathon was it, and and when was that? Do you remember? Oh, I remember very clearly. It was in November of 2013, and it was the Angel Hack Hackathon because it was hosted at the SAP headquarters here in Vancouver. Was there a theme for that hackathon, or I believe it was create a startup. <laughs> so I I, I think you sh- you should have won. Um, but actually, that is the question. Did you win that hackathon? Uh, we actually did win it, mm-hmm. um, and. I think the only real significance of that was it gave us some confidence to move ahead with the idea. Mm-hmm. I, you know, venture capitalists only get it right like one time in 10. So you can be forgiving of, you know, hackathon judges if they don't pick the next winner startup that someone spent 48 hours on. 
But uh, no, we did actually win that one. And uh, yeah, just gave us the motivation to keep working on it. The whole team, I mean, because you have a great team and, of, of founders. And how, ma- how many of them from the original hackathon are still part of the later the later.com experiment or the later experiment? All four founders who were working on it after the hackathon um, are still with the company. That's amazing. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So, And that was 2013, you said? Yeah, six and a half years. I'm getting close to seven now that I think about it. But yeah, it's uh, been a long time that we've been all together. Well, that's fantastic. No, what was what was the, the spirit of the idea behind the hack? What, what, what was it was was what you're doing the, the original intent or is that something that you've pivoted into? Uh, what we were originally doing, you know, it doesn't actually make sense as much today because back in 2013, the Instagram API did not allow you to automatically publish content. It does now, though. Um, it, you know, businesses are able to schedule content and have it automatically publish. But back in 2013, Instagram was still kind of an up and coming social network where you saw a few brands were on it. Um, and businesses, and they were kind of treating it like a online catalog, especially for things like fashion. And that was how you kind of reached out to millennials back in 2013. You had a good Instagram feed. But we had heard complaints of people who had to post to it like 10, 20 times a day, where people were used to other social media tools that would automatically publish content. Um, You just couldn't do that with Instagram at the time. So our whole hack was around, you know, just making that annoying process slightly less crummy. And we didn't even think much of it at the beginning. But what had happened was that, you know, because as developers, we just didn't have the how do I push that much content out to Instagram problem. But there were a lot of, you know, brand managers and social media marketers who did have that problem. So, you know, and we use that to get a toehold in the social media marketing space. And you know, obviously the product has had to evolve in the six and a half years since launch. Uh, but fundamentally, we're, you know, we're expanding to, we've expanded to other social media platforms, but Instagram is still kind of the core one that we've always, you know, had as the, you know, the first among equals. So you, you had to have, I don't know, maybe a dinner or a coffee meeting or whatever after the hackathon where you realized, hey, this is a good idea. We need to all quit our jobs and, and start at it. Tell me how that, how, how did that progress? The time between the hackathon and quitting jobs was a little longer than it probably should have been. That coffee meeting very much happened right after the hackathon. Um, we went to the Starbucks across the street and we're kind of all in agreement that we were going to move ahead with a project. Um, of course, it's really easy to do that coming off of a win at a hackathon. Like that really means anything to the market. Because, um, you know, right after the hackathon, you'd have that energy to keep going. The trick is like three months from there, are you willing to give up an evening or a weekend work on a hackathon project? Or is it just more likely to end up as an unfinished project in your GitHub profile? <laughs> Tell me the steps then. So you met. So this was this was just a, a night job until how long? How long was it? You know, not a full time. When did it become a full time gig for all of you? Uh, early 2015. So it took a couple of years then? Yeah, it was about from launch. Um, so again, we didn't launch right after the hackathon. There was a couple months. It was the spring of 2014. And it was close to a year before you know we saw the numbers and we were like, this is really a thing. And really what it was that we just all had other commitments at the time. Roger and I were um, working on a startup that actually did corporate team building software like for scaven- like um, scavenger hunts in the real world. For, to help with corporate team building events. And actually that startup was a lot of fun. You know, I got to be an event manager and, um, you know, it was great. Um, but we also had investors for that startup. So it wasn't so easy to get out of it and it was going okay. And eventually we had to strike a deal with people in order to kind of um, 
exit that and then move on to this project. Um, but Matt and Cindy were also at Thinkific at the time. And, you know, it was just, we all had other commitments and, you know, you can't just, you know, quit everything and go on to it. I think it was about, you know, we launched in the spring of 2014 and all through summer of 2014, we just saw the numbers, you know, steadily tick up. And it was when we had about a hundred daily active users that I think we all knew we were onto something. That seems like nothing now, but the fact that if you launch something and there's a hundred people that you've never met who don't care about your feelings are actually using it every single day, that's actually something pretty useful. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there until the summer. What really triggered the, you know, what are we making this a real company talk was that Mixpanel and Heroku were gonna get real expensive real soon. So we were like, well, funding this out of pocket was gonna go from about $50 a month to $1,000. And, you know, for a part-time gig, you want it to be, you know, making passive income, as they say, not, you know, a passive loss. Uh, so we're like, well, we're making a business tool here. Let's make our users pay for it. And we also knew we wanted to start charging money fairly early on so people don't get too used to the idea of this product being free, especially for any new features that we were adding. So in the fall, it all kind of came together. We were incorporating an investor found us and it was just kind of the writing was on the wall and we're like, okay, let's try and wind down everything else and focus on that. Well, that's interesting that you say the investor finds found you. I mean, that's that's kind of like the 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 dream, you know, opportunity for a lot of entrepreneurs because um, you feel like maybe you have a little bit more control because it's someone that really is keen to join instead of you're trying to convince them uh, to join. Is that investor still uh, part of the uh, part of the experiment? Yep, uh, Rocketship VC. To this day, <laughs> they will not disclose how they found us. They have a machine learning system that is goes out and finds you know up and coming startups that are getting some very early initial momentum. Because mm -hmm. I remember when they first reached out, we barely knew that we had any kind of momentum. So when they reached, it was kind of like, how do you, we, we barely know, how do you know? <laughs> and to this day, they have not given out. That's their big thing is trying to make some kind of solution to find these up and coming SaaS startups. Oh, that's incredible. Where are they? Are they local or are they uh, in the Valley? Where, where are they based? Oh, they're based in the Valley. In the Valley. Okay. Well, I mean, to have a little, you know, capital injection plus, you know, proof of, you know, clearly this is a useful, co um, the concept is good and everything. I mean, that's a that's a real big vote of confidence, especially uh, to get things kickstarted and, and 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 moving forward. I mean, that must have felt pretty good. Now, were they the only investors, or is it a uh, were they just taking the lead on that originally? They were the um, ones who did our angel round. We had a seed round mm -hmm. um, early in or in 2015, where there are a lot more investors who have since come on. But we found that we only really needed to raise one round of funding. If you are good with your capital and you're making a product that people are paying for, you know, you don't need to raise these massive series A and series, C, series B rounds. I love what you just touched on because one thing that I see is very different from uh, when you're in San Francisco or, or the Valley and the rest of the world is um, people in the Valley, the first question is for, you know, oh, you're in a startup. How much money did you raise? And my answer is like, uh, we're actually a business and we're profitable. Like we don't need to raise capital. And it's almost seemed like, oh, well, why wouldn't you? Wherein my notion is, yeah, if you could be a business, which a lot of people look at here, you know, I mean, sure, the, the capital can get you there faster, um, but there's so many strings that are attached to it. People think it's free money. It's never free money. No, it's really not. And it's been nice because we've maintained a certain degree of control. Um, that being said, the investors we do have have been useful in terms of their connections, their mentorship. Mm -hmm. It's always, you know, it's a lot easier to have um, someone to bounce ideas off if they have, you know, a financial interest in you doing mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I agree. And, and that should be an expected an expectation for having the investors is they want to protect their investment. So they, you know, it's not just the money. They need to have the relationships and all that. And that's where having, you know, an investor from, especially an early investor from the Valley is, is incredibly helpful. And also it, it gives you, I'm assuming, a lot of clout uh, saying, hey, you know, we're outside investment. It's not, you know, just a Vancouver project. This is a global project. So that must have. Uh... Yeah, unfortunately, Vancouver has a lot of dumb money here. <laughs> and the number of legitimate tech investors is fleetingly small. I think you and I can probably name the six that you know are good because unfortunately if you're taking money from someone who made their money in housing they're not going to know anything about you know they're kind of money and that's it and money's never been the biggest pain point in terms of growing for us i remember and you might have been at this it was a vancouver startup week event maybe about three or four years ago it was a scotch event that we it was kind of a private one and um i don't want to i don't want to drop any names i'll just say he's a very senior fellow from from the states um, in um, the, the the startup world, and he, he had a little bit of scotch in him, and he started, you know, giving us a, a speech about how I look at all the cars, and you know, I've never seen much fancier things. It should be so easy to raise capital here in Vancouver. And I remember I just had to, you know, go up to him and say, I don't think you understand. This is not sophisticated capital. Like this is money that's hidden away and in housing. It's it's not quite the same thing as San Francisco. Oh yeah, if I was developing a plot of land, it'd be great here. But the number of people who've made a fortune here in tech and are willing to reinvest is pretty small. Though it has improved, it's ha- it's improved a lot over the years. And and I would actually argue if it wasn't two thousand, you said fifteen was your uh, your your event. Yeah, that was when we did our seed. Exactly. Rent. I would actually argue there might be more opportunity for people here to invest locally now. Because there is more sophistication than there ever was before. Oh, there definitely is. But the terms that you're going to get from a Canadian VC, the, the, the unfortunate thing I say is that if you're good enough to raise money from a Canadian VC, you're good enough to raise it if, at a better valuation from a U.S. VC. Yeah, yeah. Where the risk, the risk is seen as a slightly different model, I would imagine. Yeah. And the barrier between borders for like capital moving across, it's just, it's, you know, there's been enough VCs who kind of made money in Canadian startups and having things like Shopify that you can always point to, oh, yeah. you know, as cases where people have been, you know, Canadian companies have been given capital and it's been returned. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just not that same mental barrier that there used to be. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's again, I think it's just going to improve uh, because I think the, the government's done a good job of recognizing that it's needed. I mean, traditionally, I would say the government was kind of, you know, what kept things afloat, unlike, uh, you know, VC. But I think it's it's getting more private, which is which is great, I got to say. Well, um, you guys rebranded. So originally your name was Latergram, which kind of said, said a lot, but you change it down to uh, later. What's what's the th- thought process behind the change? Well, when you start taking venture capital and you start making a company around something, this product can no longer be just a hackathon app. It has to, you know, the scope of what you're working on has to change. So obviously the easiest one for us at the time was to expand beyond Instagram to other platforms like Pinterest, Twitter, and Facebook. And it's really hard to consider yourself a Twitter and Facebook scheduler if, you know, you have a gram suffix on your name. Um, we, we always knew we were going to be changing it. Uh, so when we incorporated, we didn't incorporate, very intentionally didn't incorporate under the name Latergram because we knew this is going to get changed eventually. And we just kind of wrote it out until it made sense to, you know, say that, okay, we've got the other features almost ready. Let's do the big rebrand, um, you know, pay an arm and a leg for later.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a few months later, we rolled out the other platform. So ahead of that, so people weren't thinking we we're too tied to just 
one platform. That's 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 interesting. So was Latergram the original name, like right out of the hackathon? That was your team name, or what was your team name? Oh yeah, it was. I think we had like Latergram.it, <laughs> and then it was Latergram.me for a long time, mm-hmm. and then yeah. But like when we rebranded, it was actually um, like buying the domain name. If you've never bought a domain name before, it's such it like the prices that you people are asking for it. And these aren't like the most legitimate companies. Like it's kind of like domain people are not the most reputable people. And what you end up doing is you end up hiring an agent who's like slightly less sketchy than the guy you buy it from to ensure a smooth transaction. <laughs> so it, it's a dark world to domaining and I'm glad we kind of got out uh, or we got what we needed from it, but it was enough money that we had to kind of run it by our investors. Wow. And they were like, no, 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 that's fine. It was enough, we just, we didn't you know have to, but we're just, we're thinking about spending a decent amount of cash on this. How do you feel? I mean, you're only raising 1.3 million in a seed round, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of money we were talking about for that one was enough that we, you know, needed to get some buy-in from people to think they weren't, we weren't crazy. You know, it's funny what you say about the, um, the, the, the domain people or uh, not the specific company. I think domain people is a Vancouver company actually, or something like that actually. But, uh, they, the worst thing you can do is you can put your name in there saying you're interested because I remember when we founded, we were actually going to go for Twinjas, which, you know, Twin Ninjas, and I still get emails from the, hey, do you want Twinjas? It's only $58,000 or 158000 And then when we when we rebranded, uh, you know, from, from Two Tall Tomes to TTT, we were actually going to, we looked in to see and TTT.com was for sales. We're like, oh, that's great. Two million US. It's like, it, oh it, my it, it can't, you know what? Thank you for the you know the new uh, SD uh, the, the 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 new domain uh, TDLs because new TLDs yeah. TLDs there we go that doesn't sound right um, because it just basically kind of changed the market but at the same time anytime you can have a .dot com that's that's worth gold so okay so you know what um, so in a QA session this this is going to prove we did some research here Ian <laughs> uh, in a Q and A session with Tech Vancouver you stress the importance of standups especially for developers as a company grows. These take longer, as we, as we definitely know here, too. As a company, because you're about 100, 200 employees, roughly? Between 100 and 200? Yeah, in there somewhere. Okay. Do you still do stand-ups? And if you do, how do you balance the time of this? We just get everyone in one big row, and it takes three out. No. Um, <laughs> what happens, it was funny, because that would have been in about 2016, I believe, that talk. And at that time, we would have been 16 people. Um, which is a reasonable number of people, albeit on the higher end of what you should have for a standup. And then over time, what you found is that, okay, we would split the company. So product and engineering would have one standup, then marketing and customer success would have their own. And then, you know, as you grow, it's like, well, okay, now we're gonna have individual teams like front end, back end, and we keep have been shuffling it around. Um, but generally we hope fully never have more than 12 people in a standup. That's kind of, I figure, the upper limit of what you can get where people are still paying attention at, you know, 9, 10 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. So we still do standups, but we, um, for anyone who was in person, um, which is obviously a completely different topic in 2020, um, but we, we try and keep cap them at around 12 people. And, you know, as teams grow, you know, we have to we kind of reshuffle these every six months to what, see whatever makes sense to make sure that people are getting enough value out of them. That's I think that's probably a great idea because we have every Wednesday we have a, a standup, but we actually have it company wide and we know it takes long. Mm-hmm. But it's almost to the point that it's more of a cultural standup. We actually don't even talk about what we're doing, what we're working on, any of those typical things. It's actually more of a social check in now. So it's it's really kind of like, hey. One person will ask a question and then we just go through it and it takes like an hour. I mean, it takes a long time. But for us, it's more of a, 
just a senility. Like, how is everyone mentally doing, especially now that so many people are not in the office? And I think I, I really think it's important when we when we actually got rid of that because we thought, oh, it takes too long. It changed the culture. Like it just didn't feel the same. So I think those check-ins are mm. important. So I'm really glad that you do find them important. And I've seen your, your schedule. It's like 20 minutes this per half hour this per. I mean, it's it's it seems like you're talking to people all day. I mean, how do you, how do you balance that and get a product created? I mean, are you doing much programming yourself these days? Uh, not as much as I used to. That's for sure. Uh, one of the big things that we implemented was meeting-free Wednesdays where you're just not allowed to have a meeting on Wednesdays. And the feedback we've been getting from the product teams has been that this is like my most productive day. This is like saving my sanity. Because um, one of the things that we actually found when we first went remote because of COVID was that we actually added a lot more meetings initially to, to check in on people. Um, and what happened was that different levels of the company were adding different levels of meetings. And pretty sure, or pretty soon, what happened was people were getting so many Zoom meetings in a day that we kind of needed to peel back just a little bit because we were kind of almost overcompensating for checking in. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I started doing a, initially it was a daily brunch and learn with the technology staff just to, to do that. Mm -hmm. But as this kind of went on, it was like, okay, we, we can't have a 20 minute presentation every day um, on the dev team. And as things loosened up, you know, people might go out for lunch now. So we've kind of moved that down to once a week. Um, so we're kind of, you know, wary of just replacing every in-person interaction with a Zoom meeting. So as much as there are certain days that I sacrifice to the meeting gods, i.e. Monday, I try and keep, you know, longer stretches of time midweek. Um, there are teams who don't like the uh, meeting-free Wednesday because they're usually, or I think usually what happens is that if you want to um, convene a meeting and you can't find a time that's available for everyone, you hate meeting free Wednesday because you see this huge block of time where everyone could make it. But that means everyone else that you're trying to have a meeting with is so busy that, you know, it's kind of a feature, not a bug that you have that problem. You know, it's a whole, could this meeting really be a Slack message? And by kind of constraining the time that meetings can be, you really force people to think about whether this could really be an email or a Slack channel. Sure. Well, I find that whole, the, the meeting free Wednesday very fascinating because I've been thinking about it like crazy this morning. It's interesting that you have that because I saw in a tweet from uh, the good guys at Steam Clock how they love their meeting free Wednesdays. And I was actually focusing on that, trying to figure out how, how to make that happen. So you, you say that you found that to be positive. See, I could imagine on the engineering side, it could be great. But for the sales guys, I don't know if we could do that. I think we need to have our meetings. Yeah. And the one exception that we will make is whenever we're doing recruiting, anytime uh, there's an external party, like if we have to do an interview on a Wednesday, that's just going to have to go that way because, you know, recruiting talent is hard enough in this city without putting any kind of constraint like that. But yeah, it's, for sure. you know, we're, we're kind of going to be delegating it to the individual teams as to whether they want to keep it going. But I think all mm -hmm. the engineering and all the product teams are definitely a hard yes on meeting free Wednesday, it actually kind of started organically because traditionally Wednesdays was our work from home day. So it just kind of mm -hmm. became easier for that to be the day with no meetings until finally it just became like, well, you know, if every day is now work from home day, we should at least keep that as the meeting free day. So you just have a day of just unfettered productivity. Now, is, was that a decision that came from the top or from uh, from the grassroots bottom? It kind of grassroots until Roger, our CEO, who needed meeting free Wednesdays more than any human I've ever met, uh, decided to make it a rule, uh, or at least for on a temporary basis to try out. And what we found is that you're right, the kind of more sales and certain teams 
don't like it as much. So we're going to kind of keep it to the people who are on kind of the maker schedule who need long stretches of productive time can opt out of meetings on Wednesdays. Although some of the developers are too polite. So I'm going to have to start telling them like, no, you're not allowed to go to meetings on Wednesdays just so they can kind of like say, no, it's not me. It's my boss, Ian. He's saying I'm not allowed, you know, to kind of give them some cover to do what they need want to do anyway. Well, I dig that. And you know, what? I've seen Roger's office. It's pretty nice. He could just hide all day. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if he has to have a, a, a no meeting Wednesday or not. So yeah, but the week the work's going to be there, and whether he's hiding from it or not. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you guys have have a a, a beautiful office, I gotta say, um, with all this. Um, and I and I use with air quotes here. COVID fun. How how full are you guys right now? Is it is it like anyone coming in? I'm in the office right now as we're recording this, mm-hmm. and there's my dog and about six other people in an office that has the capacity for about fifty. Yeah. We're in what we call phase two of our reopening. I was here for phase one. And what you found is that anyone who had kids was very quick to come back into the office. Hilarious. And as much as I love my seven-month-old, he is quite the distraction in the one-bedroom apartment that we you know, live in. Yeah. You know, when I think for a lot of people, when they were getting their apartments, they weren't specking out that, you know, I need a home office with a closing door. You know, actually, when we got that apartment, we didn't even know that the kid was going to be involved, you know, so let alone a home office, too. So I as much as I um, like the, you know, home life, it's kind of nice to come into the office two or three days a week. Mm. And um, but we've said we're not going to be forcing anyone to come into the office. Like I can't imagine that happening this year or at least until British Columbia is in phase four itself. Yeah. You know, you, you described the exact same experience. People with kids are here. And also co-op mm-hmm. students are here. And, and I like that because the majority of them... I, we have the same thing. Our co-ops, a lot of our co-ops were motivated to come into the office. They want to have the experience. And I, and I, you know, I almost want to apologize to our co-ops in that it isn't the same experience as it should be. We're trying our best, but, you know, the mentorship and all that, it's all it's all online. But the tools are pretty good now. I mean, it, clearly you're able to, 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 you know, get everything done remotely. And it sounds like on Wednesday, it used to be remote anyhow. We have more co-ops this summer than we have ever had in any point in time. Uh, because it, you got to remember, you know, it seems like forever ago that April happened, but a lot of co-ops were getting laid off. Like they were having their work terms canceled. Everyone kind of was in this panic, reduced every possible cost mm-hmm. as if co-ops were that expensive to begin yeah. with. They're basically free once you factor in tax credits and all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had, you know, I remember sending an email to all of our incoming co-ops be like, everything's fine. Your job is still here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just going to, we have to assume that we're at least starting remote. And here it is mid-August and it's, you know, (laughs) they're doing their whole terms this way. And what we've found is that at the time, a lot of them are just happy to keep a job. Mm -hmm. And there are good good tools. Like if you use Tuple for pairing and Zoom, you can kind of have a decent work experience. It's not the same. Uh, We actually hired one co-op from Waterloo. And back in February, when I was interviewing him, I was pitching, you know, Vancouver summers, <laughs> you know, he, you know, but in meanwhile, he's been <laughs> remoting from Toronto most of the time. And he's come out for tier for August just to have some kind of an experience mm-hmm. and, and at least see Vancouver, this city where, you know, he's been in theory working for the past couple of months. But, you know, we're very committed to the co-op programs and we figured, you know, this is our good way. And we had a lot of our former co-ops who had other jobs get canceled. Just, you know, hey, can I come back? And we're happy to take you. So I remember it, the initial problem was we were worried that if the office reopened, that there wouldn't be enough chairs for all the co-ops or weren't because we were running out of space in this office. Um, turns out that has not been a problem <laughs> um, because people just I think some people like 
working from home. And I think some are just a little wary about coming into the office yet, just yet. And I, I don't blame them. With all the restrictions we have in here, if you have a good home work environment, it's fine. Yeah, no, I find I find that very interesting. I mean, it sounds like we've got very similar um, challenges and opportunities. I mean, in a real positive, because I, I agree. I mean, the co-ops are, are key. I wouldn't say key to our success, our success but they're a big part of our culture and, and what, what comes good out of every year. And, and the fact that you get new blood pretty continually rolling through in a positive way, like it's not a, this is a layoff or a firing or anything like this. This is like a, hey, we know you're going to be from this time to this time and we're going to make it as, as great a learning environment. And, you know, it sounds the same. So the, I'm, I'm ex-UBC, okay? So I tend to, you know, appreciate the co-ops. And I think they're great from, from UBC or, you know, SFU is great too. You I think I noticed that you put the word investor in your uh, Twitter bio at some point. I was wondering when exactly that happened. Oh, but, yeah. on my LinkedIn? Oh, that was, you know what? That was a big, I'll tell you, that's a full pod. Because we, we do do some uh, and, I, and I do do some, but I'll be honest. If you want to have some of the worst ideas hit you 10 times a day, put investor in your LinkedIn bio. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be a fan of that because I'm sure that would be amusing for at one point. But then, you know, I don't really look forward to being in Dragon's Den or, you know, Dragon on Dragon's Den because so many people just are so confident in ideas. And I often wonder, was I like this? <laughs> Some of my crazier things that I've What pitched? if I told you, yes, Ian, I've known you for for almost a decade now. I bet you were that crazy. I, I'm, I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> and that's in a positive way. <laughs> my first company was a glorified bar finder app. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure... <laughs> You know, that is a full cycle right there. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I want to go back because, again, the hackathon thing, I think I think this is really neat because I, I love the hackathons. I mean, I, I, I even remember there was one hackathon where you decided you were going to go solo and you did it yourself the entire time. Do you, do you remember that one? Yeah, that sounds like something I would do. I can't remember what the hackathon was, but it was at the TELUS building, like uh, – upstairs and I just I, I remember walking around because I was we sponsored it and I just I, you know I think I spent probably way too much time talking to you when you're supposed to be hacking but um I was impressed that you went solo and I think you you actually you did win something didn't you with that sometimes hackathons have like the sponsor specific prize I remember coming up to that hackathon because I kind of wanted to support it but at that time you know later was founded I was known as the one of the people who had a hackathon that where a startup was created out of it and, you know, at the same time, it, and I've organized other ones, so but I wanted to kind of compete, but not too much. So I was like, okay, I'm going to see what I can do by going for one of these side prizes on my own. So it was kind of a personal one, and I wasn't really sure about any of the other. Like, it, it was kind of like I was, felt a little older, you know, like a little, you know, I mean, not like in the age, but in the sense that like I've been around this community a long time, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just here to have fun. So I'm going to try and just go for one of these side prizes to not like distract from the people. Cause I remember that one, the winner was going to win like a venture capital investment or like mentorship or something like that. From BCLC. Yeah. It was a big one. And I was like, I kind of hate to take that prize away from someone. If you know, if I won me arrogantly thinking that if I was going for it, I would automatically get it. But <laughs> I was like, well, if I go for one of these side prizes for a sponsor, you know, no one's going to, you know, I wouldn't feel like I'm taking away an opportunity from anyone just because I wanted to attend a hackathon. And well, my money was on you just because I've known you for this this long. So I, when when you did win, I wasn't surprised. I gotta say, the hackathon I really want to touch on though is your Comedy Hack Day Vancouver. Tell tell us about that. So Comedy Hack Day uh, actually was a event that was I had first heard about. It was being run in San Francisco, and it was actually being run in quite a few cities. And I was like, this is the coolest thing that has ever existed. Because as much as like I'm a person who started a company at a hackathon, I actually think that's not a great way to start a company. 
And I think it puts almost too much pressure on a hackathon team to say, you need to make a viable startup out of this for no other reason than if you met all these people that you've formed a team with and then try and make a startup with them, it's kind of akin to going to a speed dating event and then having to marry someone immediately as if that ever really works out for the best. Like what was so special about later is the founders all knew each other before we, the hackathon and had some in Roger and I's case, we'd actually worked together already at that point. So there was already kind of that bond. But if I gave me four random yahoos that turned up to a hackathon and said, you've got to spend seven years with these people. If you make it big, that's putting a lot of pressure on someone up front. So what I liked about Comedy Hack Day was that it kind of took so much pressure out of what you're building and said, hey, it's okay to make a joke app that doesn't have to go anywhere, that's just kind of there for a bit of fun. And I remember talking to the organizers saying, hey, I'd like to run one for the Vancouver community. And they said, okay, well, usually we like organizers to have at least participated in one, but you're far away, so it's no big deal. And I said, no, forget that. I flew down to San Francisco and I participated in one and made a submission to really get a sense for what was going on. But, and then I ran it uh, up here later that year. But again, it was just to take the pressure off and like let people know that coding can be fun and not serious. And I don't have to make a product that is going to be venture backable within 12 months or anything like that. It's okay if I make an app where I'm pairing people that have zits that need popping and those people who want to pop zits on other people. And I think that was the winner or one of the top ones from our Vancouver hack week. I, I just, I just love it. Cause I, I do agree. I think they're too, you know, you think they're very exclusive of each other, but why are they, you know, and, and, and merging them is fun. And we, as I kind of touched on, we sponsor a lot of hackathons too. So I have to give, you know, that speech at hackathons, especially at the universities. And my speech almost every single time is, Hey, do something. I hope you fail. Like, I honestly hope you fail because this is that weekend where you can learn something new. Like, it's not that you're going to, that you're going to win. You're going to create a new product. It's the weekend for an excuse to learn a new framework or a new technology or, or do something. So if you fail, you already won in my mind. So what you're saying is, is so much more fun because you're taking off the idea of it being a business, which is like stress and all on its own. And it's just fun. And I think you must get some very creative people that want to be part of that. I have this Evernote note in my phone of like crazy startup ideas. And for a while I was like, I thought of some funny app and I'm like, that's really more of a hack comedy hack day idea, which is kind of funny um, to do. But then there's the business ones. And there's also like, I hate to say an element of arrogance to think that, you know, four people who just met can create a full startup in 48 hours with, and the thing I always love about those, um, hackathons and like startup weeks is that you have to do some like customer development on a weekend when no business is open to ever interview about anything. So there's an element of like, what, what is the reasonable expectation of what you can get done in 48 hours? Making a funny app is a reasonable expectation. Fantastic. Well, again, I want to touch on the, the, the business in Vancouver recognizing you for the 40 under 40, which must've been a, a huge honor. I, I, I remember when I read it, I, I, I sent you a, 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 I think maybe I had LinkedIn or a message right away to say, you know, Awesome, because a better person couldn't have won it in my mind. Um, but in that interview that in Business Vancouver, you say that Ian McKinnon doesn't think of himself as a startup founder first. So is this an important distinction? Um, and can you elaborate on that? So you're not a startup founder. What are you then? I would say like I'm a software, I'm a techie through and through first. Like that was what, you know, I didn't go to school for business or entrepreneurship. I went to school for computer science because that's what I've always been into. And I like making products and often being a startup founder is the best way of doing that without having the 
fewest number of bosses and people you answer to. So as much as like, I kind of, you know, I don't think that, I think it's a false dichotomy to say I'm one or the other, but you know, first and foremost, I'm a software developer. I like being a entrepreneur. I like being a startup founder, but you know, I'm, you know, I would never be a founder of something that wasn't a tech company. And most of what I can bring to a tech company is the fact that I'm a technologist who can write code. That's, that's, a, that's a great thing. Now, um, I remember a snowy day around December. It sounds like a song. I remember a snowy day in December. Um, and you just had your, your, your child and you came to the BC Tech Summit. Oh, what was that called? Kind of like a an advisory board, which I was really excited about, but I was super happy to see there. I didn't know if you were going to show up being that you just had the, the, the child. Um, and, you know, and I remember, you know, as we walked away after and just kind of chatted about fatherhood, that was seven months ago now. Over those months, what's the one piece of advice you can give for new parents? Be careful about giving out advice just to anyone. I think there's this natural, one of the things that we always found was whenever we heard advice from other parents, it's how sure everyone was of every piece of advice they ever doled out. Because, you know, the number of people who, you know, had some issue. They're like, oh, if you're out of the hospital, you got to deal with this. Because I think whenever you have an, a, a kid when, you know, an early, um, a newborn, every emotion is so heightened, every worry, you're getting used to a new kind of worrying. So you kind of overtrain your advice and just everybody had, this is the absolute right stroller to get. If you get anything else, you're probably an unfit parent. And it was just kind of, there was a, one book we read, and I think the author was uh, Emily Oster, and she was actually an economist who wrote a book about you know being pregnant and having a newborn and it was really nice she turned down the volume on everything and what she found was that like every study that tells you what like uh, one thing or another probably isn't as clear cut whenever you hear like oh babies who do xy are more likely to have outcome b usually the long and short, uh, short of that book was that once you account for like parental wealth everything else kind of goes away, you know, that kind of accounts for more outcomes than anything, which is a whole other topic. But, uh, you know, it, it just kind of turned down the volume. So like, don't worry too much about all the advice you give. Everyone is overtraining on their own examples and it's not as big a deal. People like, you know, people way less smart than you have successfully raised kids. You're going to be fine. You know what? Honestly, that could be the best advice anyone could give. Uh, you, you knocked that one out. It, it actually reminds me of my uh, my cousin's um, uh, husband in in Denver. Yeah, she she made him go to the you know those dad the dad classes beforehand, and it was hilarious because he told me what the dad classes were because he got there and it was in a bar. Uh, well, it was actually originally next to the bar, but they said, okay, guys, we're all going to go to the bar. We're just going to chat. And when your wives ask you. Did you learn something today? You say, yeah, we learned how to be supportive parents because at the end of the day, you're going to be a supportive parent anyhow. No matter what, I can't give you any lessons. So let's just have social time with dads and relax until the baby is born, which I thought was such a great idea as having two kids of my own because no matter what someone tells you, it's going to be whatever you make of it anyhow. It makes sense. So if you're going to have a support group for a bunch of dads, it would have to be in a bar. Why not? Why not? Ian, thank you so much for, for taking part in, in, in our uh, little podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Super. Okay, well, have an amazing day, and I, I look forward to continuing on the story of later and everything else uh, in your in your uh, your little book of uh, future uh, startups. All right, thanks, Chris. Hey, Afternoon Tea listeners. If you got this far, I'm assuming you liked this episode, and that's awesome. Thank you. 
In such a case, please make sure to rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast on Apple Podcasts and also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the heck you find your podcast from. Afternoon Tea is a brand new podcast. We do have some great guests lined up for our future episodes, but we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So please do let us know who you'd like to hear from on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that's three T's, dot studio. Notice there's no dot com because we're that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us on social media at TTT underscore studios. Have an amazing day.